This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Brett Kroll and is part two of our Lent 2017 series. If you've seen even a handful of football games on TV, then you've probably seen this. Uh, the teams are lining up, the ball snapped back, the kicker goes, he kicks the ball and it sails through the uprights and as the camera is zooming in on the ball, sailing through the uprights, there right in the middle is somebody holding a handmade sign, John 3.16. They're waving it around. John 3.16 is the most famous Bible verse in the entire world. Now our response to things that are familiar is sometimes, Jan heard that before. And I get that. But at the same time, sometimes things are familiar because they're really, really important. I mean, do we feel this way about air? Breathe that already. No. Okay. So, if you are a believer in Jesus, you're Christian, I encourage you to take this time to work on your grocery list or text some friends or, no, just kidding, don't do that. If you're hearing something you've heard before, resist the urge to say, heard that before, and instead, engage your heart, and in your heart say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for this great gift. John 3.16 answers one of, if not the most important question a person could ever ask, what must I do to be saved? And if you are here this morning and you do not consider yourself a follower of Jesus, a believer in Jesus Christ, a Christian, then I especially encourage you to listen this morning. It could change your life. So turn in your Bibles or your bulletins there to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The most valuable gift that I ever gave, whether in terms of money or otherwise, in all respects, the most valuable gift I ever gave was the engagement ring that I gave to Julie. In the summer before I proposed, I worked lots of overtime, and I ate nothing but undercooked oatmeal with not so much as milk in it so that I could save money. The fact that it was undercooked is completely irrelevant because that has nothing to do with money. But by the end of this summer, I had saved up enough money to buy the ring and give her the most valuable gift I have ever given to anybody. And as part of the, the proposal was this scavenger hunt that led her throughout all these places on our campus. And in the end of the scavenger hunt, there I was, waiting in a chapel with flowers, and I played her a song about, you know, I don't need to know that part of the story. But the scavenger hunt, when I was uh, developing that, I thought to myself, okay, this has to be fun, and she has to work for this, but I, I don't want to be too hard. She has to get these clues because I want her to find the gift at the end of this journey, or else I could never marry her. So God gave a gift to the world. The most precious gift that He, even He, could have given. There's no more valuable gift that could ever be given by anyone. And He wants you to be able to find it. This story of Jesus talking to Nicodemus 
was written down by a close follower of Jesus, a man named John, so that people in all ages of history could have a clear and simple understanding of what is the gift of God and how can I receive it. So this morning, we're simply going to talk about what is the gift of God and how can you receive that gift. So back to your Bibles or bulletins, continuing in verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. To be saved. Saved from what? What is the opposite of the kingdom of God? The kingdom of Satan. What is the opposite of eternal life? Eternal death. What is the opposite of love? It is not hatred. Hatred's not the opposite of love. The opposite of love is utter and complete loneliness and isolation. That is what we are being saved from. In this passage, in this conversation, there are a few phrases that are thrown around. To be saved, we'll see the phrase eternal life. Earlier in the conversation, Jesus says to see the kingdom of God, and then he also says to enter the kingdom of God. All of these phrases, to be saved, to have eternal life, to see and to enter the kingdom of God, are all pointing to the same reality. They all refer to the same thing, and that's heaven, to salvation. And the favorite phrase for John throughout his book, the Gospel of John, is the phrase that he uses in verses 15 and 16, eternal life. For the almost 50 times that the phrase eternal life appears in the New Testament, there is rarely a definition attached to it. And in all the Bible, precious few verses are given over to the description of heaven. The one description of this specific phrase, eternal life, does come in John 17, where Jesus is in prayer, and He says, I pray they'd have eternal life, and eternal life is this, that they may know you, the Father, and that they may know your Son, Jesus Christ, referring to Himself. So to know God is eternal life. To have a relationship with God, to know Him and to know this love, the love with which He loved the world when He gave that most precious gift. This is the greatest thing in this age as well as in the age to come. Now, whatever we know of the kingdom of God or of eternal life now, it is like knowing the seed only and waiting in anticipation to see what will this seed turn into. What will it grow and become? Sometimes it is difficult to talk about heaven because as Jesus said in the passage, if you don't even understand earthly things, how can I speak to you about heavenly things? We're bound by earthly language. It's somewhat like a two-dimensional circle trying to imagine what it would be like to roll like a three-dimensional ball. Though we cannot experience most of what is on the other side, we believe that it is good infinitely good, better than we can now imagine. We were actually talking about this a few weeks back at, at my res group. The topic of heaven and hell came up, and it was brought to remembrance the book Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And in this book, he talks about heaven and hell, and it does more than almost any book I've ever read, wonders to enliven, if that's a word, to enliven the imagination around heaven. 
Uh, one of our friends in the group said, if I'm honest, I'll, I'll tell you that I interpret my whole life through the framework of Scripture, but I interpret all of Scripture through the framework of The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. <laughs> now, God did not mean, He did not mean for us to be totally unable to grasp the power or the goodness or the joy of eternal life. After all, even a two-dimensional circle knows something of roundness. Salvation is so much more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's about entering into the life and love of God. And He means for us to know, even now, something of the love that fills all of eternity. This is why it is so important for the mission of the church that we love one another. This was the cornerstone of Jesus' own evangelistic strategy. He says, love one another as I have loved you. The world will know that you are my disciples. And by extension, they will know about me when you love one another. Or Paul says to the Galatians, do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Why? So that the world outside would look in on the church and say, see how they love one another. I want to be a part of that. God has made the church the sacrament of heaven, the sign pointing to eternal life, because in the richness of our love for one another, the joy of eternal life has already begun to shine. But when, by our own selfishness, we fail to love one another, we cloud and we cover over that joy, and we become, in fact, the countersign of eternal life. So the Apostle John, in his letter, to the church says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, because God is love. Whoever does not love does not know God. The gift of God is eternal life, which as we have seen is nothing more, nor is it anything less than simply knowing God and His love for us. So that's the gift. Wonderful. What must I do to get it? What must I do? What must I do to be saved? In His conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus begins by talking about a new birth. Throughout this passage, there are several phrases that all refer to the same reality. You'll notice as you begin to read John, and if you've read John, or if you're reading John for the first time, it can be confusing that a lot of times he'll use very similar phrases that are slightly different, and you wonder each time, is he talking about something different, or is he talking about the same thing? He's talking about the same thing, but with slightly different angles. So these phrases, born again, which could also be translated born from above, born of water and spirit, or finally, simply, born of the spirit. All of those phrases in this passage are referring to the same thing. They all mean the same thing. You need a heavenly birth. If you wanted to get from New York to L.A., you might need a new car. Maybe the car you have now will, will suffice. But if you wanted to get from New York to London, a new car won't help you very much. You need a whole new kind of vehicle, like a boat or a plane or oversized styrofoam shoes and a really big fan. 
Just think about it, okay? In verse 6, Jesus, uh, he delineates between being born from uh, the flesh and born of the Spirit. So born of the flesh, born of the Spirit, and it simply means this. Those who are born of the flesh have had an earthly birth, a natural birth. That's every single one of us in here. But the second kind of birth, not everyone has had. That's the heavenly birth. So how do I get that new kind of vehicle, that, that heavenly birth that will take me from New York to London? When Jesus describes it as being born of water and spirit, it is almost certain that he has a few Hebrew scriptures rolling around in his mind. Let's start with creation, which I like to call the first salvation story because, in a sense, God is saving us from non-existence. And in that story, there's water, out of which everything comes, and there is the Spirit hovering over the water. So you have water and Spirit from the beginning. After that, you've got the story of the flood, another story of salvation. And again, lots of water, water that brings salvation to good and cleanses evil. And you have the dove, who is the Spirit, the symbol of the Spirit, and you also have the wind that blows on the flood waters. And the word for wind and spirit is exactly the same. So again, you have water and spirit. Or in the Red Sea, you've got water again, which cleanses Israel from the enemy, from Pharaoh and his chariots. And you have that great wind, that great east wind, through which a path is made in the sea. And it's amazing to think that the Israelites walked literally through the Spirit of God, who was making a way for them born of water and spirit, breath, wind. And finally, in Ezekiel 36, God says through the prophet, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a living heart, and I will put my spirit in you. So you hear that language, of new, new life, new birth. And it sounds a lot like baptism, which is why the church, in looking at John 3, the church throughout the centuries has said, this conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus, it refers to baptism. And some people protest and say, hey, wait, wait a minute. We are not saved by baptism. We're saved by the cross. But in God's purpose, baptism is never separated from the cross. As Paul says in Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Going into the water is joining yourself to Christ on the cross. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, there's that language of new life, new birth. As you come out of the water, you're given the hope. You're united to Jesus in his resurrection. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Baptism and the cross, they're intricately connected. So back to uh, Jesus and his conversation with Nicodemus. In this conversation, also, the cross is the end goal towards which the whole conversation is moving. 
When Jesus is talking about the snake being lifted up on the pole, he's pointing ahead to his own crucifixion. We know from other parts of the Gospel of John that whenever we see the phrase lifted up, it is referring to Jesus being lifted up on the cross. Now to verse 14 where he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So that story about Moses and the snake, it's when the Israelites were in the desert. They were walking through the desert, wandering in those 40 years of wilderness, and they began to grumble and complain, so a plague of snakes was sent. And the snakes began to bite the Israelites and poison them, and they were dying. In the midst of this plague of snakes, God said to Moses, fashion a bronze serpent around a pole and lift up the pole, and whoever will look upon the snake will be healed from the poison. The snake is the symbol of evil. And in the story from the desert, the snakes were biting and destroying the people of God. The bronze snake was the symbol of death, and by looking upon this symbol of death, the Israelites were saved from the poison. Now, what a strange story that is. It's it's weird. God put that story there in the history of Israel so that we could have one more angle, a better understanding of what is going on in the cross. This story foreshadows the cross. Because Christians love to say that by death, Jesus defeated death. That his death on the cross was the death of death. And the great irony of the story of salvation is that this incredible gift that we're talking about this morning, the gift of life, the gift of eternal life, we receive it at the death of Jesus. Man receives life precisely at the moment when God receives death. What must I do to be saved? Believe in Jesus and be baptized into Him. Then you will receive the Holy Spirit who alone can give you that heavenly birth. Wonderful. So that's the gift. That's how we get it. Now what do we do? What should we do? Take the gift. I want to speak to three different groups of people here at the end of the sermon in response to this. And The first group are those of you who might actually be like Nicodemus. You're not quite a follower of Jesus. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but but you're curious. You're seeking. We want anyone who is seeking after God at resurrection to frequently hear a clear invitation to receive Jesus and the gift of eternal life because we do believe it is the best gift that anyone could receive, and we want you to have it. But hear me very clearly now. Jesus offers to all the gift of infinite joy and infinite life. But to refuse it is infinite joylessness and infinite death. There are only two paths in life, and you are either on one or you are on the other. Jesus wants no one to perish. We heard that in the gospel today. But perish is what will happen to those who refuse his gift. 
So if you have not yet received the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, choose that gift today. Receive Jesus today. The second group of people I want to talk to are are those who you have received this gift. Maybe a long time ago, you put your faith in Jesus. You believed in him. In my study, I noticed something interesting, uh, that the word for believe, that believing in him, you might have eternal life, is also translated trust. Now, if you were to ask me, do I believe in Jesus all the time? I would say, yes, I believe in Jesus all the time. I'm, I'm always a Christian. It's not something that I do on Monday and Thursday and Saturdays. Like, I'm, I'm always a Christian. But if you were to ask me, do I trust in Jesus all the time? My answer would be no. Throughout my day, throughout the week, I don't always trust in Jesus. I'm often anxious and I'm frustrated at the lack of control in my life. Just a small example of this, a couple weeks ago we were getting ready for our res group to come over and the apartment was a mess. We had about 20 minutes before everybody started coming over and Julie and I are barking at each other and frustrated and, and I had had time to plan for what we were going to do and the, the plan that night was we were going to debrief the identity series and I hadn't sat down and thought through that. It's not the kind of thing you want to shoot from the hip on. And so I'm convinced as we're frustrated at each other, kids are still at the table and I'm trying to pick up the apartment, I know this is just going to be an utter failure, I'm going to flop, and I don't really want to live the next two hours of my life. (laughs) Unconvinced that actually God could come in right at that moment and meet me where I needed him and do something beautiful. Instead, I wanted to stay in my pessimism and my anxiety. I don't know why, so that I could feel like I am truly a victim and all the world should pity me. I know that's only me. None of you ever have that experience. But it's, it's that way throughout the week as well. I get backed up on email, and I know that there are many of you out there that are still waiting for an email response from me, and I end the day frustrated, like, oh my goodness, I'm so anxious about these responsibilities. There doesn't seem like enough time to do all the things that I need to do. Or it might feel for you like, there's not enough money to make it through the end of the month, or some little thing isn't going your way the way you want it to. And all of a sudden, the fact that you are a Christian, that you trust in Jesus, is utterly irrelevant to your life. (laughs) And then you notice your anxiety, and you think, oh no, I'm being anxious. And it compounds the anxiety. Now you're anxious about your anxiety because you know you're not supposed to be anxious. And you're wondering, am I even really a Christian? Do I really believe? And the answer is yes, you do believe. It's kind of like Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a seed. When you believe in Jesus, it's like that seed is put in the ground. But to learn to trust Jesus for everything and all the time is like that seed growing up slowly but surely into that full, mature, fruit-bearing tree. This is the life lesson of every follower of Jesus. How to take that initial seed of, yes, I do believe in Jesus. I don't need to try to pretend like I don't. But how do I grow in trusting Him all the time and for everything? Let that seed of the kingdom of God, of eternal life, begin to grow until at last we trust Jesus all the time. And then the people around you will start saying things like, I don't get it. You're like the wind that blows. Where do you come from and where are you going? 
You're full of love for everyone. You have this joy that radiates from you and a peace that even when everything else is chaotic, you just have this peace. I don't get it. How can this be? The Nicodemuses in your life are saying, how can this be? And you get to simply say, well, I trust in Jesus. You, for, for what? Well, for everything from my backed up inbox to my eternal destiny. I trust in Jesus. So for you this week, if, if you're in this category, notice those places where you are anxious, where you're frustrated, where you're not fully trusting that the same Jesus who can give you eternal life can also help you with the small things of every day. In those moments when I'm not trusting Jesus, it takes repentance and prayer to turn that around. I simply have to say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I am not trusting in you for this res group that's about to happen. And I do now. I entrust that to you. I give that to you. I trust that you really care about how it's going to go. And that if I give my anxiety to you, you will come and you'll meet me there. The third group of people I want to speak to are those of you that when I say heaven or eternal life, you have a really strong disconnect. Nothing really happens. In our passage today, both Jesus and Nicodemus and John, who's writing the story, all share the same assumption. You want eternal life. But some of you might be quite honestly thinking to yourself, I know God has offered me the gift of eternal life, and I do believe in Jesus, but honestly, I don't desire eternal life that much. And I know I'm supposed to desire to know God, but I just don't. Here's a quote from a Christian philosopher, Peter Kraft. It's been really helpful to me. It says, No one longs for fluffy clouds and cherubs ceaselessly strumming harps, but everyone longs for heaven. No one longs for any of the heavens that we have ever imagined, but everyone longs for, and here he quotes Scripture, something no eye has seen, no ear has heard, something that has not yet entered into the imagination of man, something God has prepared for those who love Him. For those of you who are in this third place, you've been on my heart, especially this week. I've been praying for you. And I know that a few words for me at this point may not change everything. But I do want to say a prayer for you that would perhaps change your trajectory and like that seed growing would put you in a different place in time. So I'm actually going to ask us all to close our eyes. And if this is where you're at, this place of wanting to want eternal life, wanting to desire God more, then pray along with me in your heart as I pray out loud. God, I want to know you more. I want to desire you above all things. Right now, I don't, and I need to be honest about that. If knowing you is truly worth everything, please open my eyes to see that. And if there is anything in my life blocking me now from knowing you more, please show that to me right now. God loved the world in this way. He gave everything so that whoever desires to receive the gift of eternal life may have it by believing in Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. 
As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.